Father, we thank you for this great privilege we have to study your word, to hear from you. Father, your word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. You have given us special revelation of who you are, of what you expect, what displeases you, what pleases you, how we can be made right with you. You've told us all we need to know in your word. I pray that you would illuminate your word tonight by your spirit. Help us to see. Help us to hear clearly. May each person be spoken to tonight. You know what each person needs. I pray that you would do the work that only you can do on their hearts. Convicting, challenging, tearing down, building up, encouraging. Father, do your mighty transformational work as our minds are renewed, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. All right, Romans chapter eight, we're gonna be in verses one through seven. Romans eight, one through seven. As I said, all the texts are going to appear on the screen, so we'll read one through seven first. And then we will begin to break it down verse by verse. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Or and as a sin offering. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For the mind set on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are on the flesh cannot please God. Now, our text starts here with a therefore. And we always want to understand the therefore. It's always pointing to what came previous. You always want to ask, what's the therefore, therefore? And the therefore, most specifically in context, is pointing to Romans 7, 24 to 25a. I'll read it. Paul, I think speaking of himself, speaking of the flesh, that still dwells in him, that cannot and will not submit to God's law, the struggle that he faces as a Christian, he declares of himself, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, Romans 7 is very famous the things I want to do, I can't do. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing. And so Paul goes through this 
inner struggle where he himself kind of separates from himself, looks at himself as a divided person, and he sees this sin living inside of him. And he sees that the sin living inside of him or the flesh, as the ESV would translate it, is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot, it will not. The flesh is 100% sold to sin. And Paul sees himself as one who is under another power though, not just the flesh, but under the power of the spirit, capital S, Holy Spirit. And Romans 8 now is an opening up of the true Christian life. If Romans 7 is speaking of the Christian life under the power of the flesh, or more specifically, if it's speaking about the flesh's incompatibility with God's law, which I think it is, then Romans 8 is the Christian life by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is where we live, the Christian life. Friends, yes, you will experience wrestle and struggle and war as a Christian, but Romans 8 is to be your normal, regular experience. In other words, I want us to move from Romans 7 to Romans 8 as we live the Christian life. Now, what I don't expect to happen is because we're going through Romans and we go through Romans 8, you, you experience victory after victory after victory after victory. But what I want to happen to us is for us to become more aware of the power that is available to us to walk in God's revealed will. That's what I want for us. We have the power to do it. And the question is, are we engaging the power that's available to us or are we doing Christianity by our own strength and resources, the flesh? Did you know that your flesh or the sin that lives in you can do good things? Did you know that? You minus God doing quote unquote good things is still flesh. Did you know that there's such a thing as self-righteousness that looks to lift up the self in the eyes of others, that looks to impress others, that looks to be able to look down on others because look how good I am and look how wicked you are. Uh, It's very self-focused. It's not for God's glory and for the good of others, which is the two greatest commands. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so the flesh can do good, but it can also do evil. But when the flesh does good minus God's power, strength, and for his glory, it's still not good. Okay, that being said, Paul says, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And you remember from last week, or two weeks ago rather, uh, the body is the place where the sin nature dwells or the flesh dwells. The body is the part of us that will die one day, will go into the grave, and then our spirit or our soul will go to the maker who gave it, and we will be, as Christians, liberated from the flesh or from the sin nature or from the sin living in us. The body is the place, the members of our body, the body of death here is the place where the flesh dwells. And not only does it dwell in the flesh, it uses the body as a base of operations to launch temptation and attack from. And not only that, it uses the body to commit actual sins. This is what the flesh does. And the flesh will not submit to God's law and it cannot. However, the Holy Spirit enables us 
and moves us to obey the will of God, which is always good for us. It's always good to walk in God's will. It's always bad to not walk in God's will. So the therefore is pointing to who will deliver me? Jesus will deliver me. He is our only hope to escape the flesh or the power of the flesh or the flesh's incompatibility with God's revealed will or law. There is therefore now, because of Jesus and what he accomplished, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, the word condemnation in the Greek means punishment or penalty. It has legal connotations. So you are legally in trouble without Jesus Christ. You will stand before the judge and you will be declared guilty unless someone pays the cost of your sins. This is what Jesus did on the cross. He was condemned in our place. In our place condemned, he stood. And so if Jesus is condemned as a substitute for you, you no longer have that status. You walk in no condemnation because Jesus is not condemned and that is yours as a gift. So look, it's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Now there's an Old Testament story of Moses. Uh, I, I think I told it last week. He went up to the Mount, the Mount Sinai, and he asked God to see his glory. You remember that story? Let me see your glory. Moses, no one can see my glory and live. You will be disintegrated. And so he says, Here, here's what I'll do for you. I'll put you in this cleft of the rock or this cave. I'll put you in a little cave and I'll put my hand on you, proverbially speaking. God doesn't have a hand. He's a spirit. But I'll put my hand on you and I'll pass by and I'll let you see my hind quarters or my trail, like a comet has a trail. I'll let you see the trail of my glory. And so God does that. He, he shields Moses from his own glory and he lets him see the tail or the trail of his glory. And Moses uh, is so enamored and affected by the glory that he glows. Okay, now what that was a picture of is the gospel because God is shielding Moses from what would kill him. It's God saving Moses from God. He was in this cleft or in this cave and God shielded him from his own glory and gave him what he could handle without being disintegrated. That's a picture of the gospel. God saves us, Jesus as God, saves us from the wrath of God. So you must be, look, in Christ. That's your option. If you're in Christ, think of it as location. If you are tucked away in the cave of Christ, if you are in him, you are shielded from God's condemnation that will fall on anyone who doesn't have Jesus in their place as a substitute. Someone must pay the price for sin. It will either be you or it will be Jesus. Those are your options. It takes God to be able to satisfy the wrath of God. And this is what happened on the cross. In three hours, the, the whole of the Middle East there went dark and Jesus was soaking up the wrath of God for all those who would ever believe in him. He soaked it up like a sponge. And so there is no condemnation for those who are hidden in Christ. Have you gone swimming before? I'm sure you have. You know what it's like to be in water and you know what it's like to be out of water. So imagine being immersed in Christ 
and you are united with him, you are connected with him, everything that's true of him is now true of you because you are hidden in him, protected. He is your refuge. He is your strong tower. He is your place of hiding. He is your righteousness. You are in Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. And in Christ, there is no condemnation. Why? Because Jesus took it for you. Verse two, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Now, the law here in verse two is not law as in Mosaic law, but it means principle or power. Principle or power. So let's read it that way. For the power of the spirit the active power, the engaging power of the spirit of life, God's spirit is the spirit of life, I love that description of him, has set you free in Christ from the power of sin and death. From the active power of sin and death. Now, we have the Holy Spirit who is the author of life, who gives spiritual life, and who was over the waters in Genesis 1, bringing about the word of God, bringing life out of uh, the chaos, if you will. He was the active agent, uh, producing what the word of God would speak. And he is the one who brings spiritual life to us as well. And here, he is the one who frees us from the power of sin and death. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. For God has done, verse three, what the law, now this law here, is the moral law of God. For God has done what the law, the moral law of God, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Okay, what does that mean? If we were able to be made right with God, be able to have no condemnation by just having the law and walking it out, we would not have needed Jesus to come and live perfectly in our place and to die as a substitute on the cross. So the law is not the problem. This was Romans 7. The law is not the problem. The law is holy, righteous, and good. What's the problem? Sin. Sin takes the good law and uses it to excite desires to transgress it. And this is what sin does. But the Spirit sets us free from that power. That's what's being said here. The Spirit sets us free, and God did what the law couldn't do. The law is not the problem. It's the flesh or the sin dwelling in you that's the problem. The law is not the problem. Sin is. Sin takes the law and uses it to kill you. That's the nature of sin. It takes good gifts of God, and it uses them to destroy the Christian. It's the hideous nature of sin. So God took care of what the law couldn't do. Why couldn't the law do it? It was weak because of our flesh or our indwelling sin. How'd he do it? By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. Or you could translate that and as a sin offering. He condemns sin in the flesh. Now, there's a little bit of complexity in uh, the end of three there. So let's, let's unpack that just a little bit. What I first want to talk about is the likeness of sinful flesh. Jesus came in the likeness of sinful flesh. This means the incarnation. 
okay? Jesus became man and he was subject to all that we were subjected to. He was subjected to extreme heat in the wilderness when he was tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. He was subjected to probably the same kind of germs and sicknesses that we were. He was subjected to having to use the restroom like all human beings are. He was subjected to frustration, right? How long must I be with you? Speaking of the disciples, getting frustrated at them, never sinning, but getting frustrated. And so Jesus was in the likeness of our flesh, meaning our bodily form. Now, the theologians will always talk about um, the two natures of Christ, which is right. There's a divine nature that's 100%, and there's a human nature that's 100%, okay? It's the hypostatic union is what it's called. And Jesus was 100% God and 100% man, yet in one person. This is the miracle of the incarnation. Jesus never ceasing to be God, yet added to his deity humanity. He became more than what he was in a sense. He was not a human before the incarnation and he became human. That's what it means that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Now, there's a few verses that clearly lay this out in more detail than just this phrase here. So Hebrews 2, 14 to 18 says this. The children here are the children of Abraham. Okay, and we, remember Galatians chapter three, we are the children of Abraham by faith. Okay, so keep that in mind as we read this. We Christians, all who believe in Jesus, are the children of Abraham because we have the same faith that Abraham had believing the promises of God, the gospel specifically. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself, the he there is Jesus, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Now there's a text in 1 John that says, the reason the son of God came was to destroy the works of the devil. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. The reason Jesus came, that's a big statement. Why did he come? To destroy the works of the devil. Now you remember that Satan tempted our first parents and brought the whole good creation down. In fact, it wasn't just good, it was very good. The very good creation brought down to curse, to sin, to shame, to destruction, to decay, to death. And Jesus came to reverse all that. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh to reverse the work of the devil, to do battle with the great enemy, to destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Slavery as in fear. We were afraid. We, we feared death. In Christ, we fear death no more. And therefore, the one who has the power of death doesn't have power over us because we realize that death is just a door into eternal life, into escape from the flesh, into escape from temptation, to sin never again. Death is a friend even though in another sense, it's an enemy. But for the Christian, Paul says, 
It is far better to depart and to be with Christ. But to be in the flesh, not sinful flesh, but body, is far better because I can work. I can get ministry done. That's Philippians. So here, we are delivered by Jesus because we are not under this slavery of fear of death anymore. For surely, verse 16, it is not angels that he helps. And the discussion prior to verse 14 was about angels. Uh, It's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Remember Galatians 3, we are the children of Abraham by faith. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus was made like us in the likeness of sinful flesh so that, this is what would come of it, he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now you remember the high priest in the Old Testament was the only one who could go into the Holy of Holies, the most restricted place, and only once a year on the day of atonement. And he would first make sacrifices for himself so he wouldn't get killed by the presence of God. Moses, you cannot be in my presence and be in my glory without being destroyed. In the same way, the high priest had to make sacrifices for himself, cleanse himself before coming into the actual localized presence of Yahweh. And so once the high priest would do that, he would come in and he would sacrifice on behalf of the people. He would do the sacrifice of atonement. And Jesus is pictured here as the faithful high priest who goes into not the copy, but the real holy of holies, the inner sanctuary of heaven. And he is the final sacrifice and the high priest who makes the sacrifice in the service of God to make propitiation. Okay, big word there that we don't use outside of Bible. It means satisfy the wrath of Other translations translate it sacrifice of atonement. So you could say to make sacrifice of atonement for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Did you know that every time you are tempted, you're actually suffering? Did you ever think of that? Did you ever think that when Jesus was tempted throughout his whole life, his 33 years, that he was suffering while he was being tempted to sin against God? Have you ever thought about that? So Jesus suffered in all ways as we are, yet he never gave in to temptation. This is why he can be the perfect sacrifice that atones for sin. This is why he can satisfy the wrath of God or propitiate God's anger towards sin and sinners. Okay, we are safe in Christ because he came in the likeness of sinful flesh and did what we could not do, live perfectly in our place. Now, this verse here also points to um, the desires of the flesh. Let, let's pause there. I don't want to do that yet. Let's, let's stay here for just one minute, Okay. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Why? For sin or as a sin offering. He condemned sin in the flesh. So the condemnation is of sin in our flesh. And Jesus did it by him living perfectly in his flesh and then his flesh going on the cross and dying. 
And now that's a lot of flesh. (laughs) And I know it's confusing to pull it all apart, but this is what the text is saying. The text is saying that Jesus condemned sin that is in us by coming in flesh, meaning skin, bones, blood, veins, bone marrow, joints. He came as one of us, fully God and fully man. And he accomplished what we could not accomplish. And then he goes to the cross and he condemns sin in the flesh, in his flesh. Sin is dealt with by Jesus on the cross. In order that, so what will this accomplish? In order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now there's debate about this text. Uh, The two options are this. Does this mean Jesus' fulfillment of the law in our place, which he did do, he accomplished what we could not accomplish by, I did not come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. Is that what this means? The law is fulfilled by Jesus in our place. And so it is fulfilled because Jesus said, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. Or does it mean that we actually begin to fulfill the revealed will of God by the power of the Spirit. Those are the two options. Jesus accomplished it and it's gifted to us, or this text is talking about you actually living out the revealed will of God and you being able to obey the moral will of God. Which one do you think it is? I'll give you 10 seconds to think. I think, and I'm going to try to prove it here, that he is talking about you actually by the Spirit living out the revealed will of God. We are enabled as Christians by the Holy Spirit to do what we could not do before we had the Holy Spirit. We are required to 100% fulfill the law. Now, we can't do that. Jesus did it. But what this verse is talking about is He condemns sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. Now look at the next part. Who walk, that always in the New Testament means live. It's a way of living. It's a habitual lifestyle. Who walk, not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So the second half of verse four is why I think it's us fulfilling it. Because he says here, who walk or who live not according to the flesh, but according to the power of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the Galatian text. Galatians 5, 16 to 17, Paul writing to the church at Galatia says this, but I say, walk by the Spirit. That means live this out, practically do this, walk by the power of the Holy Spirit, live by the power of the Holy Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. NIV translates it sinful nature. So if you're walking by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will not do something, and that is live according to your sinful flesh or the sin living in you. You won't. That's what it says. And then verse 17 talks about the struggle. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to one another to keep you from doing the things you want to do. 
So realize that the Christian life is struggle, it is war, it is a fight. However, the promise here is, if you will live by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will not gratify the desires or cravings of the sin living in you. That's the promise. And so I think what is being said here at the end of verse four is, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, we will fulfill it, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Now, let me ask you a question. How many of you know what it's like to be severely tempted to sin, and yet you've called upon the power of God and you won? You know what that's like? I hope you do. Now, how many of you have been tempted early on in your Christian walk with very big sins, and now you're, you've grown a bit, maybe five, 10 years a Christian, perhaps three years a Christian, and those big sins no longer are tempting to you. They don't even come to mind anymore. Okay, that's what I thought. What will happen is as you continue to grow, as you continue to grow, you will see that it is inner realities attitudes, inner dialogues, judgmental spirit, quarrelsomeness, low-level anger, as in grumpiness. You will see this as sin as well, because it is. Complaining, this is the will of God for you, give thanks in all circumstances. All circumstances? I said all. <laughs> That is the revealed will of God, and that is what is possible for you and I to obey with the Holy Spirit. Now, we fall way short of that right now, right? How many of you complained today more than once, more than twice? Right, exactly. But the promise here is you will be enabled by the power of the Holy Spirit to complain less and give thanks more. You will be empowered to be less rude and more kind, more gracious, more merciful, more generous and less greedy, more loving and less hateful. This is what will be yours in the power of the Holy Spirit. More patient and less quick to anger and quick to speak and slow to listen. That will be reversed by the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul is saying, that we no longer have to live according to the flesh. Why? Because it's not the only power operating in you anymore. You have the creator in you. Realize that, friends. Now, we'll make really practical application in a minute, but I want to just give you a preview and say, the spirit of God is living in your body. Paul says to the Corinthians, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit whom you have from God? Therefore, glorify God with your bodies. Friends, you have an unbelievable, unmeasurable power source living inside of you. It can't run out. There is no bottom to it. And yet we don't tap in. I don't tap in. But it's available. He is available. 
For those who live according to the flesh, verse five, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. Now, verse five could be talking about the way you think, the way you set your mind, mindset, set your mind. But I don't think it's talking about that. I think it is actually referring to either you're in the flesh or you're in the spirit. Those are the two options here. And if you're in the spirit, your mind is set on the things of the spirit. And if you're in the flesh, you have no access to the Holy Spirit. And so your mind is set on the things of the flesh. You have no higher plane of reality than earthly things, temporal, horizontal things. More money, more rest, more vacation, more clothes, better than them, more likes on Facebook, etc. Just temporal, earthly things. That's all you That's your realm. But for the Christian, the life of the spirit is a higher plane of reality that actually includes all those things, but all those things are brought into subjection to God and his glory, not to serve self anymore. And so here, for those who live, this is why I think it means it's pointing to what the theologians would call ontology or reality or being itself. The reality of living according to the flesh is you have your mindset or your thinking is completely on fleshly realities. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. First John. And what that means is the things your eyes see that you can have, the things your body craves that you want, your desires, and then the boasting of what you have and do. This is the flesh all rooted in self, all boomeranging back towards self, self gratification, self glorification, self aggrandizement. I am God, small g. That's what it is to live in the flesh. You worship and serve created things rather than the creator, which is Romans one. But here's the contrast. Look at the, but, but those who live, look at the living piece. Those who live according to the Spirit, Holy Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Verse 6, here's the results of those two ways of living. For, the, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. Now, that not only means all kinds of temporal deaths, it does mean that. Death of relationships, death of dreams, death of hopes, death of property, death of body. It also means eternal death. The second death, which the Bible clearly clearly speaks of. The Bible is not short on warnings about final judgment and paying for your sins forever in hell. I know that that's not popular, but it's a reality. And for me to really love you the way I should as a shepherd, I need to also warn you. But the good news is there is promised escape from the wrath of God, from hell, from condemnation, from punishment. You could be in Christ and protected in him. And to live according to the spirit is life and peace. Now, the life is not only eternal life, but there is definitely an abundance of life in the here and now. Is there not? 
I came to give life and life in more abundance, or I came to give life and life in the full. Now that could be easily misconstrued to say more money, nicer cars, bigger house, more health, less sickness. That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about more of the life of the, of the spirit of God living in and through you. And if you've been a Christian long enough, you know that God uses suffering to grow you. The Christian life is one of trial and trouble and suffering for the glory of God and for your growth. In this world, you will have trouble, trials, but take heart. I have overcome the world and you will too in me. Meaning we are headed to another existence where all of this reality will be no more. No more doctors, no more dentists, no more med express, no more surgeries, no more stitches, no more runny noses, no more COVID. No more COVID vaccines, no more exemptions, you know, none of that. Can you imagine? No more politics, like no more voting. Jesus is like, I am king, period, no contenders. Now that is the case now, but we live in the middle between two kingdoms and I'm not getting into eschatology right now. We'll, get, we'll leave that for Pete's next sermon. So for the mindset on the spirit is life in the here and now, the spirit of God, which is the spirit of life and peace. Now friends, I wanna commend to you peace. Peace with God, which then enables you to have peace with your surroundings and peace with other people. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will inherit the earth. Friends, do you realize that you are called to peace? Did you know that later in Romans, when we get into the application portion, Paul says, be at peace with all people as far as it depends on you. Meaning some people will not have peace with you, but you do as much as you possibly can to have peace with everyone else. You humble yourself, you ask for forgiveness, you try to make peace. And if they stiff arm you or they knee you in the gut, all right, that's all you can do. It's all you can do. And so we are to be the ones who bring the peace of God. Now, how many of you have heard the Old Testament word for peace, shalom? How many of you have heard that? Okay. Did you realize that it is a rich word, meaning more than just the absence of conflict? It means peace with God first and foremost. You and God are not at war. Peace with yourself. Do you know what it's like to war with yourself? This is Romans 7. This is Galatians 5. You're psychologically disintegrated. Are you not? Don't you struggle with fears and pressures and stresses? And you're like, why am I like this? You're not at peace with yourself. And then when you do have those little glimpses of peace and rest and man, nothing's wrong, even though everything's wrong, you know what eternity will be like. So peace with self. But then friends, peace with the environment, we will be at peace with the wild animals and the wild. And then, fourthly, peace with other people. Can you imagine being in a conflictless world? 
I can't. We, we don't have categories for that. Because even the most tight, closest, intimate relationships in our existence are riddled with conflict. Husband and wife, brothers and sisters, parents and children, coworkers, etc. There are no conflictless relationships, right? If you have one, come tell me your secret. There is no such thing. But this peace is coming for those in Christ. Isn't that good news? Shalom. Peace with God, peace with self, peace with nature, and peace with others. This is coming. This is the new heavens and the new earth, friends. And right now, we live in the flesh, but by the Spirit. We live in a hostile world with Satan, sin, and death always pressing on us. But friends, it will not be this way forever. This is the hope we have in the gospel, is that Jesus is renewing all things, and he's beginning with us. And the church is supposed to look like a little place where the kingdom of God has broken in invisible practicality, if I could say it that way. Where we forgive each other. Where love covers a multitude of sins. Where we are patient with one another. Where we are deeply offended and we actually go to the person, look them in the eye, tell them what they've done and reconcile. That sounds impossible, doesn't it? This is, friends, what the Spirit of God can do in and through us. This is what Romans 8, 1 to 7 is talking about. Very practical, very down to earth. Not theory, not theology, though it includes both of those. So let's finish. Verse 7. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Now this word hostile uh, means this. It means enmity, actively opposed, and hatred. Do you think that describes a Christian? Because remember, in verse 5, it's the mind set on the flesh is someone opposed to someone with their mindset on the spirit. See, the person whose mind is set on the flesh is hostile to God, meaning, again, enmity, actively opposed, or hatred of God. Does that sound like a Christian to you? I hope not. This is the reality, friends, at least according to Romans 8, 7, of all your friends and family members who don't know Jesus. There is no neutrality, friends. Jesus said you're either for or against. Now, what I'm not trying to do here is set up a us versus them because we all were once opposed to God and had enmity with him, were we not? Paul said to the Corinthians, such were some of you, and he just listed a terrible list of sins. But you were washed, you were cleansed, you were made right with God, you were reconciled. This is us. We are the reconciled ones. And now we have the ministry of reconciliation. We are to go and say, I have been reconciled. You can be too. So we don't set ourselves up as opposed to those who were in the flesh. We remember we were in the flesh. 
And now we have the Spirit of God living in us, and we long for others to come into Christ as we are. Yes? So it's not a us versus them. It's us reaching out to them, saying, come in to Christ. As Jesus has welcomed me, we welcome you. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. Never, ever are we to be self-righteous and arrogant like we are the ones and all you out there under the wrath of God just waiting for condemnation. That should never, ever be the Christian's attitude. It should always be one of humble gratitude towards God who in grace chose us before the foundation of the world, Ephesians chapter one, who pursued us in order that we might pursue him. This is grace. For the mindset on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Remember uh, from Romans 7, 14, the flesh does not and will not submit to God's moral law. Indeed, it cannot. Now, that cannot is an ability word. And those who are in the flesh do not have the capacity to submit to the will of God. Did you know that? Now, this is not physical inability. This is what's called moral inability. To illustrate that, uh, this is not original to me. This is a classic illustration. Imagine someone is chained to a chair. You know, you're, it's James Bond. You're, you're chained to the chair. You're stuck. You can't get up. And someone is saying, stand up. And you physically can't obey the command because you're chained to the chair. That's not the cannot here. It's moral in that God says, love me, and you say, I will not. And because you will not, you cannot. That's the way it works. And so God wants you to renounce your small g godness and stop worshiping created things rather than the creator, and you say, I will not. And so you cannot. That's the cannot there. It's not physical, it's moral. Your desires are for self and the things created rather than the creator. That's, that's the description here. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now, application and we're done. You are either in one of two realities. Okay? This text clearly lays out those in the flesh, those in Christ who are also in the spirit or have the spirit. Which one are you in? I have to ask you. If you've not come to a place where you have seen yourself as a sinner in need of a savior, as under God's just penalty, which you will pay, no one gets away with anything. Everyone will pay for every ill thought word indeed. Either Jesus pays or you pay. Those are the options. Friends, are you in Christ? This can be done by you turning from your sin and turning to Jesus and asking for mercy and grace. Forgive me for my sins. Help me to live for you. Fill me with your Holy Spirit. Have mercy on me, a sinner. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. That's the promise. That is available for anyone and everyone who will turn from their sin and turn to Jesus. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, which I'm imagining is most, if not all of us here, 
I want to ask you a question. Do you realize that you are not condemned, period? No matter what. If you have a great day, you spend an hour in the Bible, you had this great revelation in the Psalms, you witnessed to somebody, you had a fantastic day, you were patient where before you were not patient. God is not condemning you. But did you know that on the terrible days, the most terrible days in Christ, you are still not condemned? It's not about you. It's about what Jesus has accomplished for you. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Friends, you are not condemned no matter how you're doing if you're in Christ. You're safe in him. Do you realize that? Now, that being said, some of you are now thinking, well, if you start talking like that using radical grace language, people are just gonna be sinning all over the place. Not quite. Here's the question I want you to ask now. Is your Christianity event-driven or consistent Christianity? What do you mean by that? In event-driven Christianity, you rely solely on inspiration, emotional uptake, maybe a spiritual high, and that's how you live your Christian life. When you are feeling good and doing good, you're not condemned. And so we're relying on event after event, after experience, after experience, and this is our Christianity. Did you know that that's not actually life in the spirit? We are told to walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh, Galatians 5. So this looks like, friends, more like a consistent Christianity. Do you know what that looks like? Sadly, boring and dull. What do you mean by that? That means you're going to get up and you're not going to feel like reading the Bible and you know what you need to do? Read it anyways. You know what that means? You're going you're gonna, to, you're in the flesh and your flesh is saying, don't pray. Don't connect with God. There's so much to do. You don't have time to pray. And you know what you need to do? You need to pray anyways. Your stress levels are out of control. Your cortisol is high and you just want to punch someone in the face or break property that is yours. You know what you do? You pray and walk away. <laughs> oh God, take over my body as I walk away for a moment and breathe. And you can pray something like, Holy Spirit, take over. Holy Spirit, take over. Holy Spirit, take over. Until he does. Friends, this is consistent Christianity versus I need a spiritual high. Now, that's not to discount events of spiritual inspiration. But friends, those are few and far in between. And if you are living on spiritual experiences that cause high emotions, your Christian life will be up and down and up and down. But if you can just be on a consistent, disciplined, walking with the Spirit, friends, you won't experience these, these extreme highs and these extreme lows. You won't. And so I'm arguing here for a walking consistently day by day by the power of the Holy Spirit. It will look non-spectacular. And I know that's disappointing. 
But this is the life in the flesh, not in the sinful flesh, but in our bodies. The spectacular and the miraculous happen very infrequently. But it can happen, and it does. But if you expect that and you're trying to live off of that, your Christian walk will be so disappointing. So what does that mean? Friends, that means you will be tempted to sin against God. And you know what you need to do? By the power of the Holy Spirit, fight. And you're going you're to hear this voice, again? again? Really, again? And you know what the answer is? Again. And it's the Holy Spirit saying, again. Yes, again. It's time to fight again. Get out your weapon. Resist. Call on the power of God. This is the Christian life. And what you will find is over time, weeks, months, years, decades, you will be changed and transformed into a more godly woman and a more godly man. This is what will happen. But see, what we want is for God to just zap us into sanctification and growth. Give me an experience, God. That's not how he works. How does an oak tree grow? An acorn, right? You're thinking, I don't want to say it. What if I'm wrong? What if it's one of those twirly things? An acorn. An acorn drops from an oak tree and then a tiny little sprout comes out and then there's a stem and then it gets to about three feet and then after hundreds of years, it's this massive, mighty, solid, immovable, a tornado comes through and it withstands the tornado. Friends, that happens over hundreds of years. And God is all about that. And so for you to expect to be this mighty oak of righteousness, which the Old Testament does say we will be, that's an image from Isaiah, to expect to get there like a microwave instead of a slow cooker is unrealistic and you should throw out that expectation. Life in the spirit is hard won and a battle. And anyone that tells you otherwise is not being biblical. Wait till we get to Romans 8.13 next week. By the Spirit, put to death the misdeeds of the body and you will live. By the Spirit, kill sin. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Those are your options. We'll do that next week. So we're gonna pray and we're gonna celebrate that for those in Christ, there is no condemnation. Regardless of how your day went, regardless of how your week went, regardless of how your year went, if you're in Christ, you are safe. And that is good news. And so we are going to take communion and remember what Jesus accomplished for us. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh, though himself not sinning or having a sin nature, and he condemned sin in the flesh in order that we, who walk by the Spirit, might fulfill the moral law, or live out the law of love. This is ours in Christ. And so we're going to remember what Jesus accomplished for us. We're going to celebrate and proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And we're going to sing, uh, first, give us clean hands. This is, you can stand up. Uh, this is a song 
Thank you, sir. This is a song that is practical. It's asking God to help us to not lift our souls to another. It's a help us to not war with other people. Uh, And so it's a practical outworking of the spirit of God living in us. So after we sing this song, uh, look for the gospel. I'll come back out and we will take communion together as one church. So we're asking, give us clean hands. This is a desire for God to cleanse us. We are cleansed in Christ by the body broken and bloodshed of Jesus. Romans 8.1 is ours, friends, that we are not condemned because we are hidden in Christ. To be a Christian is to be in Jesus. All that's true of him, the fulfillment of the law is ours. His loving God with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, his loving neighbor as self is ours. And then, amazingly, he gives us of his own spirit to begin to walk as he walked, love as he loved, do as he did. This is ours in Jesus. Friends, we're safe in him because of his body broken, his blood shed on the cross as a substitute. This is our hope. This is our peace. This is our life. This is the good news that we are to share with a lost, dying, and broken world. So let's remember what Jesus accomplished for us on the cross. Let's eat and drink together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in your sight. In time and space, you chose to make us alive when we were dead in trespasses and sins. And now you are continuing to save us from the power of sin in our lives, from the indwelling sin. Father, we thank you that you will finish what you started. You will get us all the way to glory where we will live free of temptation, free of brokenness. Father, we long for that day. And until then, would we be people who walk by the spirit and not by the flesh? May we experience more of living by the power of your Holy Spirit and less living under the power of the sin still dwelling in us as Christians. Father, we would ask, as Jesus told us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. May we live lives that honor you and that love others. May we see our faith practically walked out this week. May we have opportunity to share the good news with someone who hasn't heard it or to share it again with someone we've already shared it with. Give us that gift, we pray this week. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.